Very good. Hello, everyone. And uh, thank you to Sustainable Brands and MIT for hosting this session and having us here to talk about uh, the art of assigning specific dollar values to previously ignored impacts, shadow pricing, SROI, and more. And I've taken the liberties as the moderator to just say that this session is about valuing the undervalued. So that's how I'm <laughs> going to talk about it from now on. So my name is Libby Burnick. I'm with TrueCost. And I am joined today by Adam Gordon, here from CDP, who is an account manager in their supply chain program. Uh, Emilio Tenuta, who is the vice president of sustainability for Ecolab. Uh, B. Bocalandro, who has not yet arrived, but will be here for her session. And she is the CEO of Vera Works. And Tom Goslin, who is the sustainability director for DNVGL. Did I get that correct? Yes, very good. Thank you so much. I am really excited about this panel because I think you're going to hear some fresh thinking about this topic of valuation. And we've got these folks who are going to share their perspectives on valuing carbon, valuing water, and also social costs. So what you'll hear today is a little bit about how to incorporate valuation into business decision making and how businesses are using shadow pricing as part of their. So I am going to do a few things. One is just set some context for the workshop and I'm really gonna talk about just three things as a way to introduce our speakers. I'm gonna talk a little bit about those intangibles or externalities as we said and provide you with a few insights as to why we see businesses are taking steps to value them. And then I'm going to leave you with one thought, and that is to ask yourself how we as a group here at this new metrics conference can start to think about what are those new metrics that we should be including in the way that we think about more sustainable businesses. So that's the challenge that I'll leave for you. For those of you who are not familiar with TrueCost, I'll just take a minute and explain who we are, uh, which is a London-based research firm founded in 2001. Our expertise is in measuring environmental performance. And what's unique about TrueCost's approach is that we measure environmental performance in physical terms and then also value it in monetary terms. Along the way, the past 14 years, we've developed a wide range of specialized tools and data sets to do that. Uh, we've also participated in a number of activities establishing thought leadership around valuation, and we've been involved in the development of a number of different guidelines and standards over the last 13 years, and are currently at the table with the Natural Capital Coalition to develop the global standards for natural capital accounting. We've helped companies like Puma develop their environmental profit and loss account. Uh, we helped Sprint uh, become the first company here in North America to measure and disclose its supply chain emissions. Uh, we recently worked with Interface to help them develop a new methodology to value LCA studies and we're the first uh, to develop carbon footprinting methods for financed emissions from 
investor portfolios. We've done about 50 valuation projects in the last two or three years, and our data and tools inform about over $200 billion in assets under management. Um, my role with the company is to manage our North American business, and my role today is really to moderate the session and provide some context for these speakers who are going to provide all of the case studies. So with that, I just wanted to talk very briefly about terminology. There's a lot of it that gets tossed around in this valuation space, and I think if I use the terms financial capital and manufactured capital that most of you who are in business settings would be familiar with those terms, but what we'll be talking about today are largely those types of capital that fall outside that center ring, social capital and human capital, for example, which have not been typically valued by the market or by businesses, and also natural capital, which, again, is not typically valued by the market. But let me give you an example of, of what I mean by natural capital, and I think that uh, B and Tom will talk later in the panel about some examples about social and human capital. But what I mean when I'm talking about natural capital in its most simple terms are the products and services that are provided by nature and that are used by business to grow revenue. So let's take, for example, a forest which provides timber, and that's a commodity valued by the market. But a forest also cleans water. It filters water. A forest and the trees in it absorb air pollutants, and those air pollutants could harm health. And of course, a decline in health means greater social costs for our communities to pay for those costs of health care. And a forest also provides scenic vistas, for example, for tourism companies. Well, all of those products and services aren't valued by the market. They're not on the books of businesses. And what's interesting to me is that for many, many years, the scientists have told me that these products and services provided by nature are, are really valuable. Really, really valuable. But I have no idea what that means. As a businesswoman, uh, I know what financial capital looks like, I know what manufactured capital looks like, but when it comes to valuing all of these products and services, I really had no context. And so last year, TrueCost was engaged by the United Nations Environmental Program and TEAB for Business, now the Natural Capital Coalition, to really add up what the value is to business of all of those products and services. And the answer was that if we look at just the top 100 primary production industries, the value of all of those goods and services is about $4.7 trillion. That's about 5% of global GDP. So clearly, um, even if we agree that that number, $4.7 trillion, is not precisely perfect, but maybe it's roughly right, that's still a significant portion of our economy that's based on these services being provided today by Free for Nature. The other finding that has been of interest in terms of the true cost research is that if companies had to pay for these costs, 
that are currently external to the books, it would actually consume globally about 50% of the profits worldwide of these businesses. These are some of the statistics and uh, research that True Costs has provided to the State of Green Business Report. Some of these may not be new to you, but this was the first time that there's been an evidence fact-based position put forth that these unvalued or undervalued services really are quite valuable. So the question is, why value them? They're off the books. And if you're a smart CFO, you're probably saying, yes, they are off the books. Why would, why would I go about valuing them? Well, uh, one of the statistics that really caught my eye a few years ago was that uh, in 2011, I believe it was one of the large management consultancies, published a report where they had evaluated all of the profit warnings on the London Stock Exchange. And what they found was that about a third of those profit warnings uh, from these listed companies were because of resource price pressures. So a third of all profit warnings in 2011 for the largest companies on the London Stock Exchange were as a result of resource price pressures directly linked to natural capital. So I was curious. I asked our research team to take a look and see if they could find examples, current examples, from North America where businesses are now having to internalize these costs, bring these costs back on the book, either in the form of lost revenue, the cost of goods sold, increased operating expenses, or a loss in market value. And what's shown here are just six examples um, out of a document 15 pages long that they then provided to me. So for example, we've got General Mills earlier this year losing 62 days of production because of extreme weather events, clearly linked to a loss in revenue. Chipotle in April, for the first time in three years, had to raise their prices on their menu because of prolonged drought. Same thing with Starbucks in June. They raised their prices on their coffee drinks because of severe drought in Brazil. Horizon Milk and the two other leading organic milk providers in California indicate that their profit margins this year will shrink as a result of uh, organic dairy farmers being hit by the drought. FMC, another great example, they lost 3.2% in market value when they reported that the, drop in the, the drought in Brazil was curtailing sales of their crop protection supplies. And my favorite one is happened earlier this year with Panasonic in March, where because of the severe air pollution incidents in China where their employees worked, they are now having to provide hazardous duty pay to those employees, clearly a line item increase in their operating expenses. So historically, businesses haven't had to pay for the natural capital they use. But what we're seeing now is a quite significant change. The thought I'll leave you with and that I ask you to ponder as you listen to our other speakers today is really around the new metrics. So today, for example, we have most major listed businesses at least reporting 
on some of their environmental indicators, in particular carbon. And a typical example might be shown here, where a company says, how much does my business depend on natural capital? And they'll tally up how much water is used, for example, in their direct operations. And you'll see this information in a company sustainability report, or perhaps disclosed to CDP. So that's today. Our point of view on where metrics need to go is that those questions, that same question, how does my business depend on natural capital, needs to be asking instead, and in addition, how much natural capital is available for me to be using? Not just how much am I using, but how much is available where I'm using it? And how is financial capital and revenue growth linked to natural capital? So that's our point of view on how metrics related to natural capital and even just general sustainability need to be evolving. And I welcome your thoughts and also our speakers on that as well. So I'd like to turn it over now to uh, Adam from CDP, who will be talking about what I found to be a very <laughs> exciting report uh, that was released earlier this week. Yes, I'll, I'll take care of it. So thank you very much for having me. As you could probably tell by now, I'm not Max Fieldweiss. Uh, unfortunately, we've had a very busy week in New York uh, with Climate Week, uh, and he's unable to attend today, unfortunately. So I'm here in his place. Uh, and instead of a presentation, since this has been very last minute, I'll put the report on the screen. Uh, I hope that helps. Um, so yes, so thanks so much for having me here at the Sustainable Brands Conference. Thank you, Libby. Uh, CDP is very excited. Can you hear me? Okay. CDP is very excited to be here and share the insight from this latest report on the global use of corporate carbon prices. This is the third report we've put out on carbon prices, and uh, we're quite happy with this one. Um, unfortunately, my colleague uh, who leads this research uh, is not able to attend. It's been a last-minute thing. Uh, I'm here to fill his shoes, uh, and this is an important um, report for CDP to share its findings on. Uh, from our disclosures. My area of expertise is supply chain. Uh, if you have questions about supply chain, about procurement, uh, about those issues, we could talk about that afterwards. I'm going to do my best to cover this, and I'm going to be reading a bit more than I normally would because of it. Um, while, while I might not be able to provide you uh, in-depth analysis in terms of corporate carbon pricing practices, uh, what I can share with you is what companies are doing. Uh, in their own voices as reported to CDP. I'll do my best to answer any questions you may have. Uh, and if you have any questions that go beyond what companies uh, are reporting to CDP, I may not be able to answer them, but uh, I'm happy to take down your questions, bring them to Max, get back to you later. Uh, so first, a bit about CDP. I'm sure you're all well familiar with us. Uh, CDP is an international not-for-profit organization providing the only global system for companies and cities to measure disclose, and manage and share vital environmental information. We work with market forces to motivate companies to disclose their impacts on the environmental, sorry, on the environment and natural resources, and to take action to reduce them. CDP now holds the largest global primary climate change, water, and forest risk information in the world and puts these insights at the heart of strategic business, investment, and policy decisions. Uh, we've become the global standard in the measurement and reporting of climate change information. 
becoming the largest depository of this type of information. CDP collects the data once annually, and it does this very time and resource intensive work on behalf of the program's signatory investors and purchasing organizations in our supply chain program. To give you a sense of the scale of CDP, uh, over 5,000 companies around the globe respond to our request each year. And this information is requested by over 750 institutional investors. Uh, and those investors represent 92 trillion US dollars of assets. This information is also requested by 66 major companies uh, that use our system to uh, engage their suppliers on climate and water. On behalf of our investors, uh, around 2,100 companies responded to the climate change questionnaire this year, and we had over 3,000 respond through our supply chain program. It's worth noting that we are the largest investor collaboration on any single issue in history. So, really quickly, a closer look at our supply chain program reveals that in 2014, 66 member companies, some of who are featured here at this event, they may be in this room, um, reached out to 6,500 of their collective suppliers uh, in 79 countries and received 3,395 responses, so a 52% response rate. To note, there was an increase in response rate for those companies who had been asked to respond in the past, consistency matters here, uh, and amongst those suppliers that have been asked by multiple customers. Our supply chain member companies represent over 1.3 trillion US dollars and are leading um, as the largest source of growth, growth in environmental disclosures. If anyone here would like to learn more about the supply chain program, we could speak afterwards. Uh, but I'll, I'll continue about this. So 10 years ago, CDP began to fill a void in the availability of uh, corporate climate change information. We began as an organization with the simple and straightforward mission, it would seem, to accelerate solutions to climate change by putting relevant information at the heart of business, policy, and investment decisions. It can be said that the mission of CDP is to help reveal risk and highlight opportunity, and we now have plenty of examples of companies profiting from solutions to climate change. The information request for climate change information has a, a standard structure for all disclosing companies. Uh, and it includes three main categories of information. The first section is governance and strategy. The questionnaire asks what type of management structure is in place to handle climate change uh, and environmental risk, how the companies integrate climate change into business operations, do they have a target, have they made investments in emissions reductions activities. In the second section, companies provide a definition and analysis of the various risks and opportunities related to their business. They could either be internal risks for companies that will be directly affected by climate change, such as changing weather events, uh, impacting agricultural businesses, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, regulations uh, of utilities, uh, to external risks for retail companies, such as increased energy prices, which in turn would increase the cost to do business. And finally, the third section is the emissions data reporting. We ask companies to disclose their emissions based on three scopes, scope one, two, and three, uh, with their downstream and upstream, downstream and upstream in scope three, of course. Um, for companies that are asked to respond as suppliers, there's also a supply chain module, uh, which is customer-specific information. Uh, this would include an allocation of emissions to customers, uh, collaborative opportunities, uh, as well as some product label, level information. So these questions have provided CDP with an extremely rich data set. 
that allows us to provide insight, insight into the practices of companies related to natural resource use and strategies. Last week, CDP released a report based on this data, on this data set. You can see it above, and you can find it online. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have any copies here for you. Uh, the report is very much focused on the words of companies themselves in terms of carbon pricing strategies and policies as disclosed to their investors. Our primary data is based on the companies that responded to their investors through CDP's climate change questionnaire, which I've uh, gone over, around 2,100 companies this year. What the report shows, and our data show, is that many of the world's companies, including LG Electronics, Walt Disney, Google, Dow Chemical, Goldman Sachs, are already factoring a price on carbon uh, into their investment decisions. This new market information disclosed to CDP in companies' own words suggests that there is a growing corporate consensus that regulators will act to put a price on carbon. Existing cap and trade or carbon tax schemes, such as those in Europe, California, uh, seven pilot uh, schemes currently running in China, already cover 22% of the world's emissions. And businesses know this will increase. Indeed, China, the world's largest emitter of carbon dioxide, has just announced that it will create a national scheme by 2016. And this will indeed overtake uh, the EU's emissions trading scheme as the world's largest. To put it simply, smart companies are getting ahead of the, ahead of the curve. CDP's new public publication on corporate attitudes to carbon pricing shows that in many cases, businesses are operating a carbon price even when they are not required to by regulation. In other markets, companies are using a shadow price on carbon that is much higher than the one set by regulators in their regions. We received disclosures from 150, 150 leading companies that have disclosed internal carbon prices. And these range from Microsoft with uh, a price of $6 per ton of carbon, six US dollars per ton of carbon, to much higher levels for firms making long-term asset investment decisions. Companies in heavy emitting sectors, such as energy, utilities, uh, and materials often use carbon prices in the range of $20 to $90. For example, Exxon uses a price that varies from 60 to 80 US dollars, and National Grid at $89, and uh, Axo Nobel at 64. So the 150 companies that disclosed to CDP as either using an internal price on carbon or pointing to a regulated market price uh, and internalizing it into their risk management, business planning, or investments are by no means an exhaustive list. Uh, at this time, CDP does not actually ask a direct question in its questionnaire uh, in regards to carbon pricing. Each of these companies volunteered the information without being prompted. So, however, with this information and this momentum, uh, in 2015, CDP has proposed to ask companies uh, a direct question about this. Do you use an internal price on carbon? We will also ask very fo various follow-up questions uh, that aim at getting more detail uh, as to the price itself, uh, the why, the how, uh, and we'll probably uh, likely ask a question on why not, if they're not. Uh, CDP expects that this very specific question will significantly enrich our data set on corporate carbon pricing pra uh, practices and strategies. Uh, that 150 companies voluntarily disclose this information without direct prompts uh, is quite impressive in and of itself. And the report also shows that uncertainty about the future mean 
means companies are pricing carbon at uh, vary at different levels. As I mentioned, while Microsoft prices it at six to seven dollars per ton of carbon, UK utility uh, Pennon Group gives a spread of 84.24 to 324 US dollars. Uh, Pennon says that it uses the UK government's carbon shadow pricing to monetize uh, carbon emissions over the whole life of proposed projects. There's also a wide divergence between energy companies with uh, Cairn Energy using a figure of $30, BP using 40, uh, and Exxon at the type at top end, as I mentioned, it's with 60 to 80. The reason for this broad spectrum of prices is most likely that policy uncertainty means companies are having to use scenario planning and, and frankly, guesswork. Uh, as a result, businesses are less prepared to invest in emissions reductions, especially when dealing with longer-term paybacks. So action is essential, given that current initiatives, such as the European Trading Scheme and California's Cap-and-Trade Scheme, uh, are pricing carbon so low. Uh, the EU permits are currently trading around 650 uh, euro per ton. And as you may know, the carbon pricing scheme in Australia, which was introduced in 2012, unfortunately it was repealed just two years later. So several European companies, uh, such as Lafarge, Rockwell International, which are covered by the European scheme, told CDP that they want to see the system stabilize uh, and improve to help protect long-term investments and improve pro profitability. CDP found that the greatest surprise from our study was how little policymakers were actually aware of the carbon pricing already taking place uh, with corporations. And even more so by the relatively high price being used by oil companies such as ExxonMobil. What this data shows policymakers is that there's a large groundswell of support from the business community to put a sensible price on carbon that will actually lead to significant emissions reductions. This will hopefully give them the confidence to act. How am I doing on time? Good, great. Uh, we also hope it will make it easier for other businesses to think about introducing their own carbon pricing, as well as pushing for regulatory change that we can create a level playing field across the world. Uh, many of the businesses that joined me in New York City for Climate Week uh, just yesterday and the rest of this week, as well as our supply chain member roundtable, which was also held yesterday, are not just calling on governments to act. These companies are also getting into the detail of agreeing to the type of policy changes they would like to see and to a meaningful price on carbon. Does this mean that companies are way ahead of governments in planning for climate change risks and opportunities? CDP's data shows that a great many, 638, uh, 638 companies see better car carbon pricing policy, such as carbon taxes or cap and trade schemes, as a source of business opportunity. Companies from Bank of America to BASF explain that regulatory uncertainty represents risks, risk and slows down investment in emissions reductions activities. And others, such as Levi Strauss, Coca-Cola, describe how a clear price on carbon would be good for business. So it comes as no surprise that more than 200 companies this year told CDP that they're directly engaging with policymakers in support of regulating carbon emissions, cap and trade schemes, and carbon tax policies. The need for clear, robust carbon pricing policies was reinforced this week as one of the 10 policy recommendations from the new climate economy report, 
economy report uh, commissioned by several national governments. Initiatives from the World Bank, the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group, we mean business, and the World Economic Forum that were announced just yesterday at the UN Climate Summit have only added it to the momentum. Regulators should look at what leading companies are doing in this area to help inform policy that will level the playing field and introduce regulatory certainty that companies are seeking uh, and that the world needs to create a prosperous, low-carbon future. Now, based on some of the questions from earlier, uh, I'm hearing that there might be uh, a desire for some specific company examples. So we've listed those in our report, uh, but I'll go through some of them now. So the American Electric Power uh, Utility, they use a carbon price, which is integrated resource planning. They call it IRP planning, to uh, appropriately capture the potential future policy and regulatory risk associated with carbon emissions. The IRP process is the fundamental pathway through which they assess and plan for uh, providing reliable electric supply to their customers over the long-term horizon. So it's a risk assessment tool. Uh, the carbon price used with the IRP process is fundamental input that places a, a relative value on CO2 emissions uh, from their electric generating facilities. The effects on carbon pricing, as they say, are further integrated into their forecasts for commodity pricing, uh, including their wholesale electricity, natural gas, and coal. Uh, the use of a carbon price favors investment in new zero or low carbon generation and as well as gradual divestment, i.e. retirement, of older carbon-intensive generating sources. Um, thank you. One of the uh, people in the audience had mentioned early on that they're interested in hearing about how businesses are making these shadow prices yeah. operational. Are there some examples you might speak to where companies are actually making it part of their day-to-day decision-making? Yeah, absolutely. So um, two examples uh, that I could speak to. Uh, Microsoft, as I mentioned, has a, a price of $6 uh, a ton in their operations. They charge that as a fee uh, to their operations. So anytime they're having a business decision, uh, that gets added on. And then they're using that, um, that fee to invest in um, either offsets or uh, perhaps uh, new investments. I, I, I believe they funded their, uh, their renewable project in Texas most recently on that funding particularly. Uh, and let me find the other one I was going to talk about. One moment. Ah, Disney. Um, so Disney has a, a carbon fee model similar to that. Um, and I guess they didn't report so much detail on it, but what they did say is that they see it as an opportunity. Um, to be more efficient with their operations, and then they're allocating that money. Uh, let's see, TD Bank, uh, Canadian Bank. What they do is they calculate the car uh, the cost of RECs or carbon offsets on an annual basis, and then they bill that back uh, to their business groups. So it's a, a yearly process for them. How they're actually calculating it does vary. We, when they offer it to us, have the price, but. Um, there isn't a clear methodology on that yet. Thank you so much. I know you stepped in at the last, <laughs> last minute and came, were up very late with climate activities in New York and got up very early to join us, and we're very thankful that you did. You we're going to switch gears, and we've been talking about carbon. 
which I find very interesting right. because uh, it's been largely unpriced, certainly becoming priced, and lots of people putting shadow prices on carbon. And we're going to switch and talk about water. And the transition, I think, is interesting because businesses do pay for water. But the question I think Emilio is going to discuss with us is whether or not uh, the price that they pay for water reflects the full value and how that uh, affects plans and programs related to water stewardship. So, Emilio, let sure. me help you get your slides up. Thank you, Libby. So um, great that Adam and I are right after each other here talking about what I consider to be the business case, whether it be for, for carbon pricing or whether it be for water, phantom water pricing. The, the point is, how do we take, as sustainability practitioners, what we do and make it so that the CFO in the company understands and is willing to take action. And so in previous sessions today, I heard a lot about how do you take metrics, how do you take these different frameworks, and, and, and frameworks are important, but how do, you op, how, do you, how do you turn them into action? How do you operationalize them to that previous question we just heard? So my name is Emilio Tenuta. I lead sustainability for Ecolab. I'm, I'm not sure if Ecolab is a brand that all of us know in the room, but um, we're a global leader in water hygiene, energy, services, and technologies. We uh, serve nearly 1.3 million customer locations around the world, 171 countries, uh, over 40 diverse industries that we serve. So we have a pretty good perspective, and in the context of what I want to talk to you about today, which is we often work with our customers to help them implement their corporate water strategy. And what has surfaced to the top over the last few years is this notion of how do we manage water risks to the point where we not only disclose, which we know that's important and report on it, but actually take action because it's now becoming what we would consider an impediment to growth. And so what I'd like to do is begin by kind of setting the stage really quickly, probably some facts you already know, maybe you'll learn a few things, then quickly move to, so what is the framework that I'm proposing? Uh, we're working closely with uh, TrueCost on a project that I think you'll find is interesting to this discussion we're having. And then, and then I'd like to hear from you to really build off of the questions you had during Adam's presentation, but also some scenarios that we could discuss in terms of how you would see those scenarios playing out in different regions of the world. So with that, I'll, I'll begin with the, the challenge uh, that we know from a global context, different than carbon, where we know uh, carbon is a, is a global issue, whereas water has a very localized issue uh, and, and one that, that a number of the private sector companies that we work with deal with every day. And so uh, in many cases, like I said earlier, it becomes a constraint for growth, which is now why 
the attention by the private sector is, what do we do about it? So uh, headlines that uh, are interesting, I, I wanted to highlight a few things that Libby brought up in her presentation, which I thought was very relevant. One, you know, you see situations up here on the slide where water has become a, uh, such a, a, a constraint that it's becoming a license to operate in some countries. Take Coca-Cola, for example, in India. If, if I, I can't think of a better company, enterprise, as a poster child for water stewardship than Coca-Cola, but yet, this was recent, where they had to shut down operations at a bottling plant in India. To the issues that we're aware of that are happening at Lake Mead in Nevada around um, the receding shorelines there of Lake Mead, uh, to the challenges that uh, investors ha have when it comes to making the right decisions in terms of who they, uh, they, they borrow money to, to the challenges that we see from uh, water rationing in parts of the world where regulations are now taking hold where they haven't before. So as you look at the, the implication of all this is that by 2040 that we're going to have a gap between the supply and demand for fresh water. The reasons for that are ones that we know about, the megatrends that, you know, on this earth we see about 80 million more people a year. We see people living longer. That's the good news. We see that people are, uh, you know, the, the, the increasing middle class where diets are changing and we're moving from uh, heavy carb diets to, to higher protein diets that require more strain on our natural resources, in this case, namely water. So um, just to, to the level set, you know, when you think about the fresh water on this earth, 2.5% is, is deemed as fresh water. Uh, less than 1% is actually available or accessible for human use, uh, of which, um, you know, the, we know that delta is, uh, the reason we can't get to it is it's frozen in the polar ice caps. The, the less than 1% you know, is, is a challenge because we have issues with groundwater in terms of being able to replenish groundwater sources, um, as well as what's happening with, with surface water. Uh, when you look at the breakdown, specifically when it comes to uh, fresh water, uh, and this all varies based on the regions of the world, uh, the, the level of industrialization in that country, uh, but on average, globally, about 70% of the fresh water, that, that less than 1% is going to agriculture. Um, in places like India and China, it's probably going to be a little bit more, uh, but that's changing very quickly as they industrialize. Industry is about 20% globally on average, and then for domestic use, about 10%. I don't think I will shock you to, to know that from the McKinsey report that was uh, uh, issued about four years ago, that the fastest growing segment up here on this chart, incrementally, is the industrial sector. A lot of people think it's agriculture, but it's actually the industrial sector. There will be tools out there today that will help us assess water stress, water scarcity, 
water risk, water availability. This happens to be a map from WRI, the World Resource Institute. Uh, this is their aqueduct tool as an output. Just out of curiosity, how many people in the room ha are familiar or have used the aqueduct tool today? Okay, there's some of you out there. Um, this is an eye chart, forgive me, but I wanted to share this uh, came out of a, uh, a, a survey that was conducted in 2014 this year uh, called the Vox Report uh, in conjunction with the Pacific Institute, um, a leading authority on, on water uh, risk and water risk management. Really to really understand where the Fortune 500, the global 500 companies what they're grappling with when it comes to water scarcity. Some of the numbers, like 94% of the companies today see the potential challenges that water has to their enterprise. In some cases, if you look at 86% will look at water issues as a determining factor in terms of where they put their facility, their next facility. And then 57% are also challenged with, um, you know, when you look at uh, accounting for risk and, and uh, water-related challenges, um, how, how do they take action around those issues? And then the, 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 the fact of the matter is the biggest takeaway is that nearly 70% today of that same group felt that they were already doing enough in terms of managing their water issues which is a little bit concerning given the fact uh, of the numbers and the charts that we saw earlier. So now I'm gonna get at the heart of why we're here in this session, which is we all know that water is not priced appropriately when you look at the availability and the issues around uh, risk. And it makes it very difficult to make investment decisions to the points earlier that were brought up uh, when you can't really uh, take a what is a cost today that really isn't valued, water isn't valued, and priced appropriately to take that action. So this is another eye chart, but I think it makes the point that we're talking about, and that is you, there's parts of the world where we know water scarcity is well known, California, uh, India. But the challenge is, again, just to make, bring it home, is that the, the price on a per cubic meter basis doesn't really reflect the scarcity issues. Take, take Mumbai, 22 cents per cubic meter. My, my home city of Chicago, where I grew up, uh, is at what is it, A dollar or $1.46 per cubic meter, one of the richest uh, water cities in the world. Look at, look at Copenhagen. Low on the scarcity, water scarcity front, price high, where they see the value that water has to their, to their country. So you have all these different, different situations going on around the world but it's interesting when you look at where there is a lot of growth, where there's a lot of industrialization, challenges around water quality and quantity that, that really 
here reflect that water is not priced appropriately. So I often look at, when we talked about these corporate water strategies, is that we're, it's, a, it's an evolution or a spectrum where we're moving from people driving efficiency, which was, you know, uh, close, shutting down valves, uh, you know, stopping leaks, all the things that we all took as first steps when we began the journey to conservation, where we become a little bit more sophisticated about, you know, there's things that we can do to optimize, and there's things that we can do to, to not only reduce, but to reuse and recycle, to this, this far spectrum of stewardship, which in no way has become mainstream. And this concept of stewardship is that in, in the area of conservation and, and efficiency, a lot of the users in, water, in watersheds are thinking about taking action within the fences of their facilities. When you think of stewardship, you're moving beyond that. You're looking outside the fences. What are the implications of water risks within and, with, and outside of the fences of my operations that involve the supply chain as we heard about, the importance of, of how that impacts not only within that watershed but across different regions of the world that support me as a manufacturer in, in making the product that I make. So the challenge is, how do we get the CFO and how do we get other stakeholders within our organizations to really see the scope of the problem and the challenges to take action? So first, um, we'll talk about assessing the water risks. Um, we, I share here on, on the left side of the screen that water is a shared resource. We also obviously have shared risk in that, in that watershed where we have a facility or as a user. Uh, they're related to the supply chain. They're related to uh, aging infrastructure. Uh, people talk about uh, runoff water. They talk about uh, inadequate infrastructure. These are all just some of the risks associated with, with um, uh, you know, a, a site. The result is, as we heard, business disruption, uh, challenges with uh, increasing productivity uh, when the demand is there, uh, the cha challenges of rising costs of operations. These are all real. So another aspect of this is that when we think about quantifying risk, if you, if you look at you know, the current thinking around users, especially in manufacturing, where they, there's a, such a tremendous focus on operating costs within the fences. So there's water coming in, there's water going out, and there's a big focus on how do we conserve and optimize the water use at that site level. So looking at more of the full value of water, which says that you know, there are underlying risk triggers around physical, which is the water quality and water quantity based on where you're located in that watershed. The second being regulatory risk and how that's changing. We know that it's influencing pricing, albeit not fast enough for, for a lot of us. Uh, reputational factors, and on that Vox survey that I shared earlier, one of the stats uh, uh, from the survey was that 69% 
we're, we're taking action because of reputational reasons. So as I look at this, we call it the business value at risk, is to go beyond just the operating expenses at the, at the site level, but to really think about these other risk triggers of physical, uh, which is quality and quantity, as well as reputational and regulatory. So we have been working with TrueCost um, on, on the creation of a tool that will enable users in a region anywhere in the world to really assess the local water risk, namely in terms of physical risk, water quality, water quantity, but to not only quantify it, because there's a lot of tools out there that quantify risk today, but to take it to that next step of monetizing that risk on a per cubic meter basis. So we know what the market price is today. I shared a slide that reflects some of the examples around the world. But how do you go up and beyond that to really quantify and monetize those risk triggers that we talked about on the previous slide so that we can take action where we couldn't before um, beyond the water bill. So the idea here would be current risk, but as well as future risk, how do we monetize that so that we can really take action? Here's three cities. We ran the, the, uh, these three city locations where we're saying that we've got a processing plant uh, in uh, China, Chengdu, China. We have a factory in Mexico City, as well as a hotel, a lodging property in Chicago. So as we ran it through this tool, what we found was interesting. Uh, first we said, okay, what is the price of water at that location given the extraction rate? Um, what was the scarcity level that the tool identified? And then what was the risk premium factor? And so as you can see across these three very different regions in terms of, of, of level of risk, we got very different uh, factors. And so take the Chengdu China facility where you're looking at a market price of 46 cents per cubic meter. Uh, if you apply the risk premium, it should be more on the, on the, on the line of 88 cents per cubic meter. You get, you get the point here. It, it really goes beyond that market price based on the risk identified. So you don't stop there because once you've made that business case, the question is how do you operationalize it? So uh, in the end, it, you, you have to be able to make more effective business decisions, substantiate investments, understand where you want to put your capital, build new plants. Those are fat things that you need to consider as scenarios in order to substantiate these risks. So uh, first is this incorporate a risk-adjusted cost as part of your operational practice as a manufacturer, whether it be to imp improve the facility or to invest in capital uh, in, a, in a plant in a region. Then begin to manage those risks because it's a, it's a, it's a journey. And there's obviously, uh, as you look at opportunities to continuously improve, 
over time, we know there are, the risks are changing uh, also because of whether it be climate change, whether it be uh, population growth, whether it be industrialization, that continues to put more stress on that water basin. So how do we keep uh, tabs on what those risks are? And then especially the higher probability risk. So it all always comes down to what is the, what is the uh, business impact and then what's the likelihood as we saw in the previous presentation. And then monitor those other risks that may not be high cost, high probability today, but over three, four, five years may turn into that because of some of those reasons. So now finally got to the slide that I wanted to, to really share with you and get your thoughts, which is, you know, if you talk about making informed decisions in operationalizing this, what are some of those scenarios that we, that we, that we think of when it, we're challenged as users in different parts of the world? Well, one is, you know, which facility is most suited to, for increased production? If you're a multinational and you're, you're really uh, looking to uh, go capture share and, and, and there's a demand in parts of India, is that a consideration when it comes to how we look at water risk? Another is which facilities have the highest rate of return for improvement projects for existing facilities? Uh, which suppliers pose the greatest risk? Uh, if you're a large retailer and you have a, a very large supply chain, how do you look at uh, your supply chain, not only in that watershed, but also in, in other parts of the world where you're getting a lot of the supply and raw materials? Um, to, to meet the demand of new regions, um, the most strategic location for your facility. How can we monetize risk to help make the case for proactive water management strategies in new facilities? Some cases, um, for those of us who've looked at capital requests for, for, for big capital, the challenge becomes, you know, we have to look at the weighted average cost of capital because we know there's risk associated from a financial metric standpoint, right? It could be political unrest. It could be a number of factors that we build into what that weighted average cost of capital is. This is no different. How do you build water scarcity and water risk into that weighted average cost of capital? So, given that kind of, hopefully whet your appetite, no pun intended, <laughs> what does this mean if I go back to a scenario like we talked about earlier, in this case, a beverage plant, bottling plant, say they make carbonated soft drink. And they're operating a facility in China they're operating a facility in Mexico, and they're operating a facility in Chicago. How would we look at where we would make those investments in capital? How would we look at the growth plans and projection over the next three to five years, given that for every case of carbonated soft drink that goes out, we know there is a allocation of water that's needed to get there beyond just the what's going in the bottle, it's also the operating water that's needed to run the facility. Um, I wanted to end with this slide to, to this point about investment. By virtue of being able to now 
operationalize a risk premium as part of an organization's approach to managing water risk enables us to really look at innovation differently where we haven't before. It allows us to look at investments. It allows us to really rethink our business strategy, as you pointed out, in terms of uh, we don't necessarily have to build a plant that doesn't have a waste treatment facility. Now we have a compelling case and substantiate that case in terms of why we need one. The uh, final thing I'll say is that water stewardship, another key component that differentiates water stewardship from water conservation efforts is this feeling of, of collective action. And you and I talked about this in the last session. Collective action is that we have an opportunity here, being in a watershed, that other users are really grappling with the same issues that we are. If I have high silica as a water quality issue in a coffee plant in Mexico City, without a doubt, there's someone else that's also grappling with the same high quality issue uh, or high silica issue in that same area. How do we begin to share best practices? How do we begin to learn from each other to really take more collective action, influence policy, maybe be a little bit more aggressive about how water is priced from a market perspective by virtue of that. These are all things that allow us to, 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 to move this along faster and further than we are today. Ken, one other thing since your, your point about um, you know, accelerating, you know, how do we look at market pricing? Um, I just feel that there's, you know, when you look at urbanization over the next 40 years, the, the, the UN feels that 70% of the population will be living in urban areas. The biggest challenge with urban areas today, if you look at Atlanta as an example, it's a water scarce area. It's uh, uh, been challenged and they have taken steps. Their water price per unit is $6.20 per cubic meter. They have taken steps, but the challenge with municipalities today is they have aging infrastructure. They're gonna, they're gonna have to invest in upgrading their infrastructure, namely because they're gonna to have to figure out a way to take gray water and begin to look at beneficial reuse opportunities within a city to make it sustainable. Today, it's not sustainable. So that's gonna take investment. That's gonna to have to, we have to think about it differently than we are today. So with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop because I know we're out of time. So thank you. I'm really excited to introduce our two next speakers. Uh, Tom Gosselin, did I say that correctly? Very good, from uh, DNVGL, who's going to present to you an actual case study on how DNVGL went about determining the actual return on an investment. So those of you who were asking at the start of the session for some very specifics, about the how-tos, I think you'll be very satisfied by this presentation. Tom? Um, thank you so much, Libby, and it's an honor to be here. Um, I think I'm just going to start off with a little bit of a, a pop quiz, and, and if I can get the quote right, I want you to say which CEO said the following. Um, so yeah, you, you've got to be really sort of a CEO geek to get this one. Um, the quote was, if you think I make decisions based on ROI, 
only, you better get out of this stock. Tim End quote. Let me? Tim Cook. Tim Cook. Yeah, yeah, Tim Cook. Tim Cook said that, so I like it. If Apple can say that, I can say some stuff as well. I'm pretty bold. Um, um, so yes, that's let me introduce. Uh, this, this is a, a, a real um, case study we were asked to do. It's a, lot, a lot of people were asking the question out before, you know, we need this stuff to be able to convince the naysayers in our corporations. Uh, the ones who are always asking, why should we do this? Uh, we need more data. We need more more quantifiable data. Um, you know, these kind of numerically uh, minded people. I'm numerically challenged. They're numerically minded. They they need more numbers in front of them to help them make decisions. So, um, just to caveat this, no tough questions, especially from that table over there. Um, I am not an accountant or a controller. Um, I just help put together these kind of projects. Um, so. I know most of you all kind of say, who are DMVGL? Um, we're not that well known out there. We're pretty much a service provider to the energy industry. Um, from what we call from the oil, head, oil well head to, to down to refineries, down to, to electricity generation. Uh, we've been uh, working with sustainability advisory services for over a decade now. Um, I've been with the company for 15 years. Um, I came from the ESG background, environmental social governance from the investor side, um, and I found a nice home in DNVGL. Um, we've been providing trust uh, since 1864, and for those of you who are numerically minded, you'll notice that we celebrated this year 150 years, so we've had loads of parties. Uh, in our 300 plus offices around the world, in the 187 countries we're in, and that number of employees keeps on changing, going upwards mostly, um, as we've been acquiring a few companies. I think 19,000 is the latest number there. And we have over 7,000 clients around the world. Um, largely, we work as a third party. We kind of validate stuff. Uh, so if anyone has any environmental claims out there, we're the ones that kind of say, yep, that's pretty accurate. That's pretty reliable. Um, so that's our role. Uh, I've been working for uh, DMVGL. For 10 years, as I said, I've been stationed in Beijing, Dubai, London, and now uh, Oakland, California. That last one doesn't sound so glamorous, but it's pretty nice. Um, I'm allowed to use this, apparently. Um, so I'm going to jump straight into that. I only have about 15 minutes, so um, you've got questions and answers afterwards, after B's presentation. Um, the customer we had was a company called Kaizen. Uh, it's a Brazilian company. It is one of the largest ethanol producers in the world. So that's all derived from sugarcane. Um, so um, they were basically the first company to get a certification to the bond sucrose standard. Does anyone know what the bond sucrose standard is? One, two. Wow. That's usually, that's like three times more than, than I usually get. <laughs> Told you about the numerically challenged part. So uh, they were the first company to get certification on their mills in Brazil. Um, and they had um, pretty high ambitions on it. And they're, they're a strong stakeholder in the Better Sugarcane Initiative, which is the, the, the platform that supports the Bon Sucro standard. Um, they had achieved certification for some of their mills. And they kind of got to that loggerhead when internally someone said, show me the business case for this. So they came to us and um, 
they basically said, okay, can you help us define uh, the premises and parameters for calculating ROI on something like this? Um, something like a bond sucrose certification. And, and can you customize a tool to measure the baseline so that you know exactly what you started to and what exactly the bond sucrose certification contributed to? Because it's kind of nebulous to do that. Um, so we adopted our own, we have a tool, I'll explain on the next slide about that. Uh, and finally, you know, can you, can you provide a third-party assurance on that? Can you actually say, okay, Ryzen has used the tool appropriately and adequately, and it's, it's, a, it's a credible process. Uh, and all for the purposes of providing management and, and other stakeholders with some reliable decision-making da data. Um, so Heisen was the client, Bon Sucro was the standard we were applying, and it wasn't kind of good enough for, for Ryzen that we provided a third party view on it, but we actually had someone looking over our shoulder as well, called OIA, a Brazilian organization, they were looking over our shoulder to see that we did the job right. So they were the fourth party involved in this, which is pretty unusual. Um, but the reason being there were a lot of stakeholders interested in this, uh, particularly the Bon Sucro board itself. You can imagine they're saying, hey, someone's going to say this is a business case or not. So uh, Ryzen really didn't feel they could kind of get up there and, and not present something that had been not only third party validated, but fourth party validated. Um, so a little bit about uh, the, the Bon Sucro standard. Um, it is a multi-stakeholder initiative. Um, particularly, you have to involve the stakeholders in, of course, the sugar-producing regions of the world. Um, so at the moment, if you look at global sugarcane production, um, it's, um, or global sugar production, one-fifth is from beets or sugar beets, and four-fifths is from sugarcane. Okay? Um, these, so th this graphic is, is not the most up-to-date one, but um, I think as of uh, end of 2013, they had managed to achieve about 3% of certification of, of uh, sugar mills. It's a largely fragmented industry. It's not exactly considered to be a clean, homogenous industry. So getting to 3% since 2011 um, is probably one of the fastest performing standards, sustainability standards there are. It doesn't seem like much, but from you know, 2011 to 2013, two-year period, it's had quite a bit of traction. You can go onto the website and see all the companies that have achieved certification to date. Um, another thing to notice also, um, Bon Sucro is, is um, recognized by the uh, European Union uh, to satisfy the EO Biofuels Directive. Um, if you all recall from five or six years ago, uh, a lot of stories about food security and whether fuel was competing for food and raising the price of food. So um, the EU has very strict criteria on the sustainability of, of any uh, feedstock that contributes to, to EU biofuels. Um, here you can, this is a, a, a very tiny chart, but it gives you more specifically the evolution of the standard. Um, so. This is kind of now getting straight into the weeds of the project. Um, we have a tool here called, we call it Rossi, the Return on Sustainability um, Investments. The reason being is we look at not just a specific project uh, um, involving some investment, but we can also look at a portfolio of, of projects or a corporate portfolio of activities 
and measure the return on the sustainability investment um, within that portfolio. Um, so this is the, the tool we had that Horizon asked us to modify. So the premise essentially was, let's look at the investment required specifically for bond sucrose certification to Ryzen. So we had some historical data, and we were also trying to, to base the baseline on that and then also be able to use some modeling to, to forecast some additional costs. So the direct investments uh, we can look at were, you know, the resources of the sustainability department required to support the, the, the certification, the use of consultants, that's me, um, you know, big, big ticket item there. Um, the actual training required by the standard, because like many certification standards, it requires that the people who manage the, the standard are adequately trained. Um, thereafter, any sort of projects that came derived out of the bond sucre certification or came under the, you know, were identified by it and, and put in place by it, we had to look at issues. For example, um, CAPEX and OPEX and, and fleet improvements, uh, equipment and personnel. Uh, additional personnel. So very simply from the Canon perspective, those were the, the uh, investments or the costs associated with it. And then on the return, it was fairly simple to come up with two of the indicators, which was the premium pricing or the price above regular sugarcane um, going to eth or ethanol coming out of it, um, the premium amount, and the increased sales derived from having that certification. So that was the easy part. Um, then we had the fun part of the indirect, and this is what came directly from um, the Rossi uh, tool, is how do you quantify um, legal compliance? How do, how do you quantify whether they're, you know, the avoided fines? Would you, would you look at it that way as an example? Um, how would you calculate avoided safety incidents? Because the bond sucrose standard also has requirements on, on employee health and safety. Avoided absenteeism, absenteeism and attrition, so turnover employees. Um, I know my company has had an internal shadow price on, on employee loss. Um, I, remember, I used to remember the number, I can't remember it right now. But if I walked out today, it was like it would have a, a, a measurable cost in my company. I like to think that's high too. Um, and then also the, the, the standard says, it puts a limit on the, the amount of fertilizer and pesticides you can use or apply to the fields. So what was the, co the cost saving of, or the saving of avoided fertilizer, herbicides, and pesticides? Um, and of course, there's also um, avoided waste and increased efficiency. Energy efficiency could be one of this. Water efficiency can be another. So without going into the specific details, we came with um, quantifiable measurements for each of these. We also came up with quantifiable measurements for other aspects. For example, brand. So, uh, Ryzen being the first uh, company to achieve the certification, it got a lot of publicity, favorable pu publicity um, involved. And the, the, the uh, marketing department of Ryzen said, okay, how about we translate that into proxies such as, hey, a really favorable article written in the main uh, financial newspaper in Sao Paulo, would we put that equivalent as being a full page advertisement in, in a trade magazine? So they put the cost of that as being in there. So every time they get a mention, they be able to equate it to the, to the price of a full-page advertisement, half-page, quarter-page, et cetera. So those were other indirect or intangible um, 
costs that we were able to, or, or savings that we were able to quantify. Um, there were a lot more that made the cut. The reason that these were the final ones decided on um, were simply because they aligned very specifically with the five principles of the bond sucro standard, and therefore because the bond sucro board was so damaged in this thing, this is what they want to have in the end. But believe me, there are more indicators in there that we were not able to put in the final project, but that we all reached a consensus on. It's able to quantify these. Maybe there. Um, so getting there to the end here, um, uh, not only, I, I mentioned before, this is ongoing scrutiny. Um, you get brands such as Coca-Cola and PepsiCo, I just put the Coke bottles there to kind of reflect all the other ones and to keep my marketing manager at bay, just put one brand there. Um, but all, the, all the, the, the brands which have committed to the Bond Super Certification and Nestle is one, Mondelez, uh, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, uh, a lot of the brands that use sugar um, are on that board. They certainly under scrutiny. WWF uh, and Greenpeace, for example, um, they're also monitoring. Solidaridad is a, um, a uh, Holland-based um, nonprofit. They're also keeping close eye. And as I mentioned, the EU because the EU, the only certification they accept for ethanol at the moment is Bon Sucro. So they have the, the political scrutiny on board. Um, and just to kind of say that we didn't just look at what the ROI was to Ryzen as a stakeholder and try to calculate the cost for them. Um, we also, as part of the greater project, so we didn't commission directly, but we did provide the recommendation that they also try to quantify the biodiversity implications. So these are the specific environmental benefits of having the bond sucrose certification. So the uh, International Union of Concerned uh, Scientists, I think it was, IUCN, something? IUCN. What does it stand for again? International Union of? International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Thank you, that's the one. I get that with the UCS mixed up quite a bit. Thank you. More comments like that, please. Um, so yeah, they also want to quantify what exactly can you quantify, what the biodiversity benefits are uh, of them having adopted the, the, uh, the standard. Um, last slide here. Um, so this was the one, uh, the, the one slide that kept my, my, my presentation from being sent to sustainable brands for so long because I was trying to get permission to, to fill in these numbers here you see here, these are actually from our, our report. Uh, I was not allowed to say what exactly the return on investment was. Uh, you can get two clues. Um, one is by the number of digits uh, or X's in that. And the other one I was told was to, to, whatever you say, just say it with a smile. So it was good. <laughs> they were pretty pleased with it, put it that way. Um, we had like three takeaways or observations um, at the end of this uh, project. Um, the first one is get synergy on the baseline. It's tough to get people to, to say, this wouldn't have happened if the Bon Sucro standard wasn't guiding us. Um, so that, that was kind of tough, getting people saying, well, no, this would have been business as usual anyway. And we're saying, nah, maybe not. So get that consensus determined in-house and with external stakeholders. There's a lot of people watching what the results will be. Number two, don't underestimate the value of the management system. Um, of the mills that were certified to Bon Sucro, 
quite a few of them never had a management, formal management system in place anyway. So with going back to the baseline question, how much benefit was just from having a management system in place, a structure in place that, that sort of empowered people to do the right thing? Um, and third, as I mentioned, um, quantifying the intangible. Uh, we had to limit the scope to certain um, indicators or certain, certain quantifications that were based on the five principles of the bond sucrose standard. But as I mentioned about the brand um, correlation there, the proxy we used for, for measuring brand, which was the advertising costs, don't underestimate the quantifying the intangible, is extremely important. Um, it, it also allows and, and empowers people in other departments of an organization to say, hey, we can also take this on board and we can find our own um, sort of business case for something. Um, so that's it. That's pretty much my presentation. Okay, 
you have that in mind. Um, now, actually, everybody, um, go ahead and stand up unless you know you have a sprained ankle or you're asleep. In which case, stand up for a moment. Okay. We're going to do a quick poll here. Okay. So, of this effort, okay, is it feasible for you in six months to say, hey, for every dollar that we put into this program, here is the societal benefit in dollars. Okay, here's another example. 
know, your, your employees spend two hours a week mentoring a, a, a student, okay? So what can your company say is the societal benefit of that, all right? And then can you, can you monetize that? So here's an example of this being monetized. So the, the result of this particular SROI is that for every dollar invested, $2.74, I think is where I ended up, uh, comes back as a benefit to society. So you can see that juvenile crime has been monetized, the reduction in juvenile crime has been monetized, truancy has been uh, monetized, enhanced school achievement has been monetized, reduced tobacco use, all of these abstract concepts have been monetized. Okay? So I'm, I put this example up there because it's public and you can then go and figure out how they did it so that I don't have to do it right now. Um, here's a third example, okay? So now, you, a homeless child, they're no longer homeless, what is the benefit to society of that? Okay, this also has been monetized, in this case in Canada. So um, this is for every dollar spent on um, reducing homelessness, in teenagers, then results in $56 back to society, okay? Anybody have any any uh, ideas on how, where those $56 happen? How, what's the benefit? Yeah. Oh, how, sorry, I'm not sure. Yeah, my question was really clear. Let me, let me answer it again. Yeah, where, where might that benefit Absolutely. Okay, especially emergency rooms. That's a huge one. Uh, what else? Crime reduction. Crime reduction, yes. So uh, this ends up not being rocket science, yet very, very few companies can show something like this. And so my mission is to help change that, because that will help all of, our, all of us with the work that we do, if we can do this more often. Okay, so there's three examples, all right? Um, so what I find where we get stuck is in three different places. One, we say, oh, that's too, that's too um, abstract, that's, that's not measurable. The second place we get stuck is, um, what about attribution? Do I really know that it was my program that <laughs> got that child to no longer be homeless? And then the third place we get stuck is, how do you find the monetary value? Okay. So the, the, and the companies that succeed at doing this is because they, they control <coughs> over each one of these hurdles, okay? And it takes three attitudes for this. So um, the first one is, so the way I like to talk about this is I was um, in Germany, in Munich, and I was with a um, German automaker, and they have this, they have this very sophisticated program in the community. They go into schools and they do all sorts of um, technology and math um, programs. And the my contact was lamenting that it's very hard to measure the social impact of this program. You know, he's like, I know that these that these children are doing much better, but how do I measure that? So that's that. We finish the meeting, we go to lunch, and then he goes, you know what, why don't I give you a tour of the plant? So I'm like, okay, 
So he takes me to this racetrack, okay? And this particular manufacturer, um, you can, they have people drive their cars on the racetrack, and especially on the turns, they measure how much joy you get out of taking that car on that turn. So I look at him and I said, wait, you are the people that can measure joy, but you can't measure how well this child is doing in the school? And he's like, that's a very good point. And my, the point here is that we, so anybody have any guesses on how they do this? They, um, <laughs> no, actually the Apple one. So uh, when I tell my Georgetown students, I'm like, imagine, imagine a company making a decision to uh, open, I don't even know how many it is, you know, 42 retail stores based on a rough correlation that when there's a retail store there, 
um, online sales go up. And they're like, oh, that would be outrageous. You know, they don't really know whether it was the store that led to online sales going through the roof. I mean, that's just a mere correlation. Well, that's what Apple did, okay? So the point is that in the business world, very few decisions are made through experimental design results. And if the best you can do is a correlation, then I think that that's a, just go there first. And then when they question the correlation, I've been through this now with like 14 different companies. So when they question the correlation, then you have your standard answer. You go, you know what? And this is a true case, this is HP. It's like, we put the information in front of them that employees that participated in their community involvement program had higher engagement, way higher, statistically significant degree, and they said, okay, that's a correlation, but we don't know whether it's causal. So we said, okay, give us a little bit more money so then we can figure out if it's causal, which is easily done. We did it, we found that we did a pre-post quasi-experimental design, we used the original data that we presented to them as the baseline, it was really simple, it was dirt cheap, it really only cost me like, cost them like two days of my time to do this. And now they know that the that employees now it's quasi-experimental design um, findings that employees that don't participate in one year uh, uh, and then stay not participating, their morale went up 29, uh, 19%. Employees who didn't participate the first year and then participated the second year, their morale went up 29%. So that's a 10% different gap, which is huge if morale starts up being high. So, um, so I, I think that this attribution problem shouldn't stop us. Just cross that bridge when you get to it. And the other thing is that what I have found is that a lot of companies, including very metricy companies, like uh, so I'm not going to name them, but a lot of companies, when you present a correlate, the correlation, and you offer to do a causality analysis, more often than not, they're like, no, actually, we don't need this. It's okay. This is enough. I believe this because I've seen this. So, um, so I think we give too much attention to the attribution problem, and it's solvable anyway. My out of time. Okay. Let me just uh, one last thing. Um, just on the monetizing, the, the very last challenge is the dollar amount. So, how do you put? How do you attach a dollar amount to the you know the the one? person not being homeless to uh, somebody doing better. So I actually think this one is borderline laughable because if anything, we live in an incredibly monetized society. So I'm actually reading a book right now called Sacred Economics, and it's all about how we've gone down the path of assigning, assigning a dollar value to anything. So um, there, if you want if you want to look for what the monetary benefit of something is, then um, here's some questions that can help you get there. Okay, um, so, okay, so real quick, um, so you can see how these three, if, if you just apply these three principles, you can get to results like this. Okay, let's go ahead and do the post poll. Okay, everybody stand up. Okay, so.
Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Thank you. I'd, l I'd like to first thank the panel for uh, your time today and for your insights and for sharing what I thought was just wonderful information and very interesting points of view. Thank you thank all. You. And I'd like to... <laughs> and thanks to all of you for your time today, for attending and for your thoughtful attention, your questions, and your feedback.